<clears throat> Father, we, um, we love you. And we love you simply because you have loved us first. You've come to us. You've predestined us. You've adopted us. You've sealed us in the working of your spirit. You've drawn our eyes to you, Lord. You've helped us to taste and see that you are good. You've opened up our eyes to behold your glory and your goodness. You treat us better than we deserve. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. You cast them as far as the east is from the west. And you continue to pour out your love and mercy upon us day after day. And your faithfulness, God, is something that should really grip and astound your people, when we, especially when we are mindful of how we are unfaithful fast. should be. But we're reminded, Lord, that um, you hold us fast, that you are committed to carrying out the work of redemption that you have started and you have uh, brought us into it. You began that work in our lives individually as well, and you will carry it to completion. And we are thankful for that as well, Lord. We look to you today, Father, and I pray that we are especially encouraged as we see the tender affection of our Lord Jesus towards Peter, one whom he knows is going to deny him and turn his back and curse the one that he loves, and yet that does not deter you from the cross, and it doesn't deter you from loving Peter well and fully and faithfully, and it doesn't deter you from using him in an incredible way in the future. And for all of us, there is a tremendous amount of hope and encouragement in that as well, Lord, and I pray that we are strengthened today. Thank you, Lord, again for this time of worship. We look to you now and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was this week just especially encouraged as I was reading through our passage for us to, to be in today and thinking about God's um, his work, His preserving grace in our lives that is always at work in us, dependent upon his faithfulness, his goodness, in which we are recipients of this incredible working that he does in us. And if you've ever been in a position where you failed the Lord, maybe into some very terrific, great degree, and it's caused you to wonder or to doubt whether or not God would or could ever use you again for his kingdom purposes? You question, am I a lost cause? Is this what I have done, what I have committed, the way I have lived, the way I have been? Does this discount me from further ministry and usefulness in his hands? And I think if you've ever um, gone through that line of thinking and if you've ever wondered and struggled with that, today's message is going to be especially encouraging to you. Um, and so I want us to be able to be encouraged today as we go through this text together. Really, ever since the beginning of Luke chapter 22, we have found ourselves spectators to a key, um, intimate setting between Jesus and his apostles. And this week's passage being perhaps the most intimate of them all as it concerns Jesus' conversation with Peter. Um, it's Peter and the other ten that are there. Judas is most likely no longer with them. He has left and gathered his group of rebels to come and arrest Jesus in the garden later on. 
but it's still Thursday night. It's getting later into the evening. Jesus has sat and eaten this new covenant meal with his apostles, and he's emphasized the importance of um, how they are to serve one another and to be a servant of him is to be a servant of all servants. And then he has this intimate conversation with Peter, though the other 10 are there and hearing and listening, he speaks directly to Peter um, and what it is that he is going to do through Peter later on in Peter's life. Um, and, it's, and it's incredibly encouraging, I imagine, for Peter and for us too when we consider what it is that Jesus is doing and what he knows is about to happen, what he knows is going to take place and what it is that Satan has desired um, of Peter, of God, you know, from Peter, and yet Jesus' defense, he defends Peter, which in and of itself is just like a remarkable concept. And you know who Christ is, and you know who Peter is, and you know who you are, and that he would defend us. And I know, who, I know myself well enough to know that if he's defending me, he's always on defense, because I do a lot of things that are dumb. And yet, that's why I find myself so encouraged by a passage like this. So, uh, just three short, or four short verses for us this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. And we'll read through it, and then we'll work our way together. And I just really want us to notice two things this morning. I want to notice how Jesus' power to preserve Peter comes out of the text, and then how um, Jesus' power to use Peter comes out of the text as well. So God, Jesus preserves him, and then he uses him. And so, Luke 22, 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Very short passage, very intimate setting between Jesus and Peter, this conversation. Jesus tells Peter what it is that he is going to do, but Peter's mind is fixed on his dedication to the Lord Jesus that he knows and loves. And he has no idea. Jesus knows what it is that's coming I mean, in this passage, we see that Jesus knows all kinds of stuff, that Peter and the other apostles have no clue as to what it is that is going on. Um, and it reminds us of this really kind of this uniquely apostolic moment that is going on here. Jesus is inaugurated a new covenant meal through the apostles, as this would be a staple of the New Testament church for years and years to come, for the New Testament church age, as he has... Um, instituted this new covenant meal with the apostles that they would be insistent on carrying out, and then how, like I said, to be a servant in the kingdom of God is to be a servant of all servants. And then he has this intimate conversation with Peter in particular. And um, even the, and one of the things that's interesting is that even though we don't see Christ preventing Peter from falling, we see the preserving work of grace in Peter's life. Jesus knows what it is that's going to happen, and he doesn't prevent Peter from doing it. But yet, it doesn't prevent Christ from his preserving work in Peter's life. 
And I think about that and, and, and its application for us and how God knows what it is that we will do and oftentimes yet doesn't pre- prevent us from doing them. It reminds us that his preserving work doesn't mean perfection. But the preserving work in his life is based up, in, in our lives is based upon his sovereign choice to do so, to preserve us, to keep us, and to fulfill the plan that he has for us to play in his kingdom. And Peter's going to play a very unique role, which we'll look at here in, in a little bit. But first we see the preserving nature, the power of Jesus to preserve Peter. He opens up and he says, Simon, Simon. And again, the repetition of his name, um, Simon, his, uh, his, his birth name, if you will, doesn't refer to him as Peter here, but refers to him as Simon. And the emphasis, the, the, the repetition of the name emphasizes his care and his affection for Peter. And he tells him that, um, behold, Simon, Simon, behold, or look, take notice, I want you to understand something. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And you need to understand that what's really kind of unique about this is that the you that Jesus puts there is actually plural. And so he's, it's like he's saying you all. Satan has demanded to have you all. But he's talking to Peter. He's having this individual conversation with Peter, and he's saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have all of you. But I have prayed for you. And he turns it back into the singular in verse 32. And it, remind, and, it, and it goes to show us, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit, of the particular work that God has for Peter's life individually. But he lets them in on the knowledge as they're all standing there, and, Peter, and Jesus is talking to Peter individually, that Satan's demand is for all of them. He wants them all. And, you've, and, and you, you figure, I mean, consider it. Satan demanded to have you all. It, it gives us the picture of the disposition, the nature, and the character of Satan. Who is it that would dare go into the presence of God and make any sort of demands? To make a demand, it's as if he's saying, they are mine, and I demand that you give them to me. I own them. They're mine, and I want them, and I want them now. And if any of us, I mean, a lot of us in here have children. You can, and, and we get the, the, the picture in our head of what your children do when they demand. I want it now. Or I've been in enough counseling situations with couples where you, you see the look in the eye of one of those two, maybe both of them, when they demand that their spouse be a certain way or do a certain way. And it's this, it's this posturing of, I have the right, and you owe it to me, and you will give it to me. That's what you do when you make demands of people. You are exerting a type of ownership an authority over them where what you're asking them to do for you and give to you is your God-given right. And if they don't, they are transgressing or sinning against you. And Satan postures up 
against God himself and demands to have the 11 of them. Give them to me, they are mine. And you think of the brazen and the bold and the brash character of Satan. Full of wickedness, vile evil, and how he raises up and to demand that God, he sees himself, if not in an equal position of God, but in being a position of authority over God. What type of person could actually think this way and make demands of God Almighty himself that he would demand to have the apostles given over to him and actually expect for God to go along? with it. One of the things I think about here is that the passage reveals to us that there are spiritual realities that are happening around us of which we are completely unaware. I mean, Peter has no idea. The other ten have no idea that Satan has demanded to have them. They have no idea that Jesus has prayed for them, that he is preserving them. It it reminds me of the fact that there are spiritual realities that go on around us and among us that affect us every day, which we are completely clueless to. And it has not, had it not been for the preserving work and grace of God in our lives, who knows what it is that would be taking place in our lives. Satan himself has demanded to have the 11 given over to him that he might sift them all like wheat. When you sift wheat, you know you have the chaff and the kernel and the intent is that in sifting it, the chaff is done away with and what's left is the good kernel. But we see here in verse 32, but I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fail. Satan's desire is that Peter and the 11 of them would be proven to be nothing but chaff. That their faith would come to an ultimate and ending failure. And even though Peter fails, in a way, it's not an ultimate failing. It's not not the apostasy that Satan is desiring. It's not the ultimate leaving and walking away that Satan desires to have of Peter and of the other ten. I mean, if it were up to Satan, it it would be absolute destruction, devastation in the life of the apostles in this context. He has an absolute hatred for God. He hates the Lord Jesus Christ. He hates the church. He hates the apostles. He hates anything that has to do with godliness and God's glory. And so when he asks, and when he demands, give them to me, what do you think that he wants to do with them? I demand that you give them to me. Why? So that I could absolutely destroy them, make them miserable. That is his intent. He is a liar and a deceiver. He is a murderer from the beginning, and he just wants to do what comes naturally for him to do among the 11 of them. To sift them like wheat. The goal is ultimate failure of their faith. He wants to try them. He wants to tempt them and to where they would be proven to be ultimately unfaithful to him. But Jesus says in verse 32, the beginning of it, 
but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I mean, what sweet words of encouragement. Can you imagine what the apostles must have been thinking? Like, as they get closer to the cross, you see Satan's activity become just more violent, more aggressive, more clear. He himself is portrayed in the Gospel of Luke with such great clarity and personal involvement um, that has never been displayed in the book of Luke since chapter 4 when Satan was in the wilderness with the Lord Jesus himself. But as they get closer to the cross and Jesus accomplishing his work of redemption, Satan's involvement, personal involvement, becomes more clearly seen than ever. And when they're hearing, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you all, that he might sift you all, oh man, I could imagine their hearts just either sheer terror, fear, worry, but then the words, but I have prayed for you. And you see the strong defense of the Lord Jesus Christ himself come into the picture. The strong tower, the refuge, the place where they go to, their, hide, their hiding place. The Lord Jesus himself prays, not for all of them, but in verse 32 when he says, I have prayed for you, he goes back to the singular and he goes straight to to Simon Peter himself, I have prayed for you. Satan has demanded to have all of you, but I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And we'll see how he doesn't leave the other ten left uncared for, but for the moment, it's very, very clear that his intent is for Peter to know that Peter is the one that Jesus has prayed for. And that it's his faith specifically that would not fail that he would not apostatize, and that he would not leave. Jesus makes it very clear that this isn't so much about Peter's ability to hold fast to Christ, but it's about Christ's ability to hold fast to him. And we take that into account for our own lives as well. Even in our unfaithfulness, even in our sinfulness, even when we fall into temptation, our lives are never so much, our salvation is never so much dependent upon our own goodness and our own faithfulness and an ability to hold fast to him. It is always about his willingness and his desire and love and affection to hold fast to us. And he preserves us to the end, even in the midst of our sinfulness, even in the midst of our folly, even in the midst of of knowingly turning our backs on him. What's incredible is that in verse 33 and 34, Jesus tells Peter that he is, Jesus knows what it is that Peter's going to do. And Peter will knowingly and willingly, he will consciously make the choice to deny knowing the one that he loves. Oh, in Peter's, in, in, in the midst of the lack of pressure and trial and suffering, we will make great boasts of willing to do great things for Christ. But when that pressure comes in and when the persecution comes in and the trials come in, will we stand? Will you trust in His preserving grace to complete the work that He has began in our lives? That's the hope for Peter and that's the hope for us. I wonder if, I think, of, I think of the passage that I preached on for Easter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
I wonder if by the time Peter gets done writing verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1, he's thinking of this, this moment, this preserving grace in his life. He writes this, I'll begin in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I wonder if the guarding work of, of God in the lives that Peter is so confident of, in the lives of those in the church, is just simply, obviously, divinely inspired, but also an overflow of his knowing what it is like to be guarded and preserved by God himself personally. And so later on in chapter 5, when he, taught, when he encourages his fellow elders to, to shepherd the flock that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock until the chief shepherd appears, I wonder if he again is thinking of how well he was shepherded by the chief shepherd himself, even in the midst of his falling away and denying of knowing Christ. He's able to write as one confidently in the guarding and effect in and preserving effect of Christ himself encouraging the church to lay hold of it and to know it to be true for them because Peter knows it in his bones he knows what it's like to be unfaithful and he knows what it's like to be shepherded faithfully and preserved and for any of us who have been unfaithful any of us who have given in to sin and temptation and experienced the preserving, shepherding goodness of Christ knows what it's like, knows the care, knows the overwhelming goodness and compassion, patience that God has, the long-suffering that he portrays in the life of, in the lives of his people preserving us, keeping us, not, not fully always preventing us, but preserves us to be with him, to receive what it is that he has promised to us. I think of the way that Hebrews talks about this. The book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, verse 25, says this, as it talks about Jesus' role now. Right? He's resurrected, he's ascended, and what is he doing? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's interceding. You've often heard it described, or sin defined as missing the mark. And that is certainly a part of it. It's not, I wouldn't say it's the full definition of what sin is, but at its basic level, it's missing the mark. This word intercede here, this verb intercede, is actually the opposite. It means to hit the mark perfectly. And so Jesus is, in a sense and in a way, always perfectly hitting the mark on behalf of his people. He intercedes for us. He is constantly able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
He intercedes. This is his work that he does for his people. That your salvation is yours and can be, can be lived out confidently because he is currently interceding for you. And then later on in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. His office is one as mediator. He intercedes because he is the mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Even now, currently, you think about as our mediator, he currently intercedes for us. He has prayed for Peter. I think of what we've been learning in the men's breakfast of John 17, how Jesus in John 17, 9, prays for those whom he is among at that moment. And then later on in verse 20 says, not only for these have I prayed, but I pray for all of those who would believe in me through their message. Jesus' role and function as, as one who prays and intercedes as he mediates for his people. He is actively preserving you. This makes Jesus not far away or uninvolved or uncaring on what it is that's going on in your life, but it makes him acutely aware and near and close to you and to me in every moment of our daily living. That he knows and he sees and he mediates and intercedes for us and covers us with his blood and, and imputes to us his righteousness. His perfect life lived is accredited to us because his mediating and interceding work. Puritan John Flavel says this, he does not pray for health, honor, long life, and riches, but for their preservation from sin, spiritual joy in God, sanctification, and eternal glory. That's what I want. I want him to pray and to intercede for me regarding the things that really matter most. My spiritual joy in God, my sanctification, my preservation from sin, and my eternal glory. Those things that he has secured for me, that he has laid up for me in heaven that I am, I am waiting to embrace fully and completely one day when I go to be with him. My salvation was, I've been justified by faith based upon the completed work of Christ, and I'm sanctified by the grace that he exercises in my life as he preserves me, and that preserving grace carries me all the way home to be with him. And that's remarkable. That is grounds and means for worship. And so we have great comfort and confidence in Christ and his preserving work in our lives. But not only do we see Christ's power to preserve Peter, but his power to use him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have returned, when you have repented, when you have turned again, after you have done what it is, that you are going to do and deny knowing me, what he says in verse 34, after you have turned and repented, 
strengthen your brothers. It's not as if God leaves the other ten hanging and doesn't care for them. But his care for them is intended to come through his instrument of Peter. Sometimes we think that God is late. Or he is postponing a work in our lives that we so desperately want for him to do. I, I, if I'm in this room and I'm one of the ten, can you imagine how you would feel? Jesus is saying, Peter, he's looking at Peter, your friend. He's saying, Satan has demanded to have all of you guys, but I have prayed for you. I'm sitting there going, okay. Are you praying for me too? <laughs> I hope so. But we're reminded that God's work in the lives of the rest of them is going to, it's, it's not that it's not going to come. It's just it's going to come through his chosen instrument of Peter at a particular point in time. And God never delays in accomplishing what it is that he wants to accomplish. God's timing is always perfect. He's never late. He's never ahead. He's, everything always takes place in our lives according to his perfect timing. It is always unfolding according to his timeline. He is never fearful of his plan failing. I mean, can you imagine that? You're always unafraid. You're always fearless of your plan being accomplished because you are the one that carries it out sovereignly, powerfully. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can stop it. And his, his intent is to to use Peter to encourage the other ten. It made me think of the, another interaction between um, Jesus and Peter. After Jesus' <clears throat> resurrection at the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21, he has this interaction where they're out fishing and they see him on the shore, and when they know, when they, when they realize that it's the Lord Jesus calling out to them in their boat as they're out fishing, Peter's undressed because he's working, puts his outer garments on, jumps into the water, gets to shore before the boat, and is, because his eagerness to be with his Lord and Jesus asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. I, I wonder if Peter's thinking back to this, like, you know everything. You told me ahead of time I was going to deny knowing you. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The call that Jesus has 
in Peter's life to care and strengthen the brothers, to feed his sheep, to care for his sheep, to tend to his lambs, is one that Jesus continues to reinforce to Peter. And then you think of the way that Peter was used specifically in the book of Acts as well. You're talking about God's usefulness of Peter, his power to to use Peter because he preserves him from failing ultimately, even though he does fail at this particular moment in time and would obviously fail at other moments in time. But But the commitment of God to use Peter still in incredible ways. In this sermon in Pentecost, at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, you know, he's the, he's the one who casts down the ruling judgment on Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. You read through the, the, virtually the first 12 chapters of Acts is all about Peter. He is the primary player. And most of the miracles and wonders and signs are done by Peter. And the gospel first goes to the Gentiles in Cornel- to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 through Peter. You think of this way that Peter failed Christ. And yet, God's plan to still use him for his redemptive purposes in the lives of other people in an incredible and tremendous way, becoming like a pillar of the New Testament church. I have prayed for you, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And this, really, this strengthening, this call, what it is that Peter does, is simply what it is that we seek become normative through the New Testament church. God using his people in the church, in the lives of other people within the church to strengthen them and encourage them. You think, I, one of the clearest passages, I think, is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul would write this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us in our affliction so that we can become a source of comfort in the lives of others. Whatever it is that you have gone through is an instrument in the hands of God in your life to make you an instrument into the, hand, into the lives of other people. His intent is that through the the trials and the sufferings that we encounter, you are being equipped and preserved to be useful in his hands into the lives of his other people. I heard it. I saw this written down. If you're not dead, God is not done. His intent is that you would be used I, I, I've talked to a lot of you guys about a lot of personal stuff. And so as I'm, as I'm preparing for this, I'm thinking, 
What a wonderful opportunity for us to think about the preserving work of God in our lives, to not like jettison us and, and, and throw us aside. When we fail, but to use us as instruments in his hands to then help other people to become a source of strength and encouragement into the lives of other people. God has not intended for us to go through hardship and then to shrink back and to become introverted and, and retreat back into our holes and into our caves, but to see that God uses things, these things in our lives as part of his sovereign plan to prepare us and equip us to help other people because there are people that are hurting and suffering that have no idea why it is they're going through what they're going through. And you are equipped to help them, to walk alongside them because you know what it's like to go through a trial. You know what it's like to suffer. And you can come alongside them and you can say, Let's look to the Lord together. Let's trust in him. He's good. His promises never fail. And we become instruments in his hands, helping people change and grow. And you have to see yourself that way. That's what it is that we're supposed to be doing as a church. But you know what that means? You know what that requires? You got to actually like talk to each other. You know, you got to spend time together. You got to get to know one another. You think of the importance that um, something like hospitality plays in a ministry like this. Of think of what it is that involves becoming a source of strength to another person, becoming a source of comfort, but becoming a source of encouragement in the life of another person. It means that you're available. It means like this is actually a priority to you. If this, if, if ministering to others and serving others and becoming a source of strength and encouragement to others is not important to you, you're not going to make time for it. You'll be consumed with doing other things. If this is a priority, it's going to take time. You know, like conversations take time. Not everything can be handled and accomplished in five and ten minutes of talking to someone, hey, I'm really going through this thing, struggling, they pour their heart out, I'll pray for you. Let me know how that goes next week. Like, yes, we want to, prayer is absolutely an essential component of strengthening each other. But it takes time to minister to one another and to actually talk and have conversations. And, if it, and, and it has to become a priority in order for you to begin to restructure and reorganize your life to where you become available to minister to other people. People created in the image of God, people, people that have been bought by the blood of Christ, that are suffering and, and going through hardship and trials, looking for hope. Aren't trials disorienting? Aren't they discouraging? Don't they have the tendency to turn your world upside down? You don't know up from down or right from wrong. You don't know which way to go. Every single passage of scripture that you once had memorized, you can't remember one of them anymore. You don't know where to go in your Bible. You don't know what to read. You don't even know what to say when you, when you go to the Lord in prayer. And how helpful a companion is in our lives in that moment. And if you, and if you want to be a companion in that way, You've got, to prior, you've got to reprioritize your life. You've got to make yourself available. You've got to be willing to take time 
Got to answer the phone. Got to respond to that text message, that email. Think about how the important, I mentioned it, the importance of hospitality in this, sitting down with people, making the time for people, the importance of prayer. You know that if you're going to pray for people, like, genuinely, that also takes time. I think one of the reasons why we don't genuinely pray for people is because we just don't take the time to do it. It's like a half-fleeting thought. Someone pops in your mind, oh, yeah, I pray for them, Lord, be with them today. And you're off. What does that mean, be with them today? What have you just said? You know? And take time to pray for people. It means that you're stopping your current thought process and you're, and, you're, and you're thinking about them and everything that they've shared with you and all that's going on in their lives and all the people that are involved and all the sources of pain and suffering and struggling and, you're, and them personally and you're praying specifically and trying to pray, pray effectively for them and their situation. Not these broad generalities, but specifically praying for people. It, it takes time. If you want to be a source of strength and encouragement, hospitality, prayer, these things taking time, spending time with people. But then also you think about the different ways that God has already, um, all, the different, all the different things and, and relationships that we have in our lives currently that God allows us to play this role in. Think about in your marriage. I mean, ask yourself the question, are you a source of strength and encouragement to your spouse? Are you a source of strength and encouragement to your children, to your friends? And you think about in a real practical way, how are you gonna apply this? Probably you start with the person sitting next to you. becoming a source of strength and encouragement for them. What if everybody within the church had this mindset of becoming a, strength of, a source of strength and encouragement for everyone else? We would just like be encouraging each other all the time. People would want to come to church because they find that they're being helped by the other people that are there with them that day. As the word of God is going out, as we're partaking of communion together, we're listening to the sermons together, we're doing life together, and we're actually strengthening and encouraging one another. The passage ends with verse 33 and 34. Peter makes this bold proclamation, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Luke's gospel is the only one that includes the word that you know me. The others say that you will deny me. Luke's gospel is the only one that says you will deny that you know me. And it's this, it's this intimate personal connection between what it means to actually know another person. Genuinely, intimately. You're going to deny that you know me. 
And you're, we'll see later on in chapter 22 how that just cuts Peter to the heart after he does what he's going to do. I wonder, Jesus tells him that the rooster's going to crow after he denies him three times. And I wonder, I wonder what it's like for Peter every moment in his life that he hears a rooster crow from that point going forward. Is this reminder of what it is that he did? Or is it a reminder of God's preserving work and grace in his life? I mean, we have, we, we have these things happen in our lives, right? Every time you drive down that street, you go by that old house, you smell that smell, you hear that particular sound, right? It, it, it brings back all these memories of things that you would just, like, rather forget. And it can either be a source of discouragement, of past sinful failures, or it can be a source of God's goodness, what it is that he brought you out of, brought you from, and the preserving nature of his grace and his goodness working in your life. One commentary that I read said, how instructive it is that the one ordained to strengthen Jesus' followers and will not be strong and invincible, but weak and fallen. And how encouraging that is for us. Because we can, I think, identify more with Peter and his weakness and his fallenness than we can in his ability to strengthen and his boldness and his proclamation of the gospel. But it reminds us of God's goodness, his preserving work in our life, and his power to continue to use us for his purposes. As we per- begin to prepare to take communion together, remind us of what it is that I said at the beginning, that this isn't so much, Jesus' interaction with Peter isn't so much about what Peter's goodness and his ability to be faithful to the Lord, but it is about the Lord's faithfulness to Peter, the Lord's faithfulness to us. And his faithfulness endures through all generations. His steadfast love endures forever. I mean, the believer, we can say that truly and rejoice in it because we are the recipients of it. This steadfast love, this, this faithfulness that never, that never wanes, that never goes away, that is constantly at work in our lives. Communion time is a wonderful time to think of that particularly because there's no greater and clearer example of the faithfulness of God to redeem the sinner than what it is that Jesus does upon the cross. I mean, he knows that Peter's going to deny him, and he still goes to the cross. He knows what it is that you and I are going to do, and yet he still goes to the cross. He still buys us and purchases us in his love for us. As we read in Ephesians chapter 1, in love he predestined us, he adopted us, he brought us in to the praise of his glorious grace. When we think about his preserving work in salvation and in sanctification, it should lead to proclaiming the glory of his great grace in our lives. He becomes the object of our affection, of our worship. And that's why communion time is always a time of worship. It's a time of, of, of examination. It's a time of confession. It's a time of assurance. Because we're reminded of his faithful work in our lives to preserve us, 
and to use us for his good purposes. If you are here visiting with us today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we do invite for you to partake of communion with us if you've come to him by faith and by faith alone, not by any work or merit upon your own goodness. And you believe, confess him to be the Lord and Savior, then we invite for you to partake of communion with us, to worship along with us in this way. If you're not, then consider who it is, who it, who it is that you say he is. Do you know him in this way? Is he preserving you by his grace? Do you know him in that way? And to consider and come to him by faith. The elements are on the table in the back. You can grab them and return back to your seat. And we'll partake of communion together here in just a few moments after we have some personal time of meditation and reflection.